again, or Pastor Craig, even for the introduction. Thank you so much uh, for that. Tonight I have a small confession uh, to make before we turn on God's Word together. Uh, we started our series uh, looking at the miracles of the Lord Jesus, and we've been doing that really up until tonight, um, because tonight we're not looking at a miracle of the Lord Jesus, but we entitled our series Christ in the Crisis, so tonight we are very much looking at a crisis that involves the Lord Jesus, but it's not a miracle. You see, the story that I want to look at tonight is a familiar story to all of us. It's found in John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, a very well-known portion of Scripture. It is the woman caught in the act of adultery. Very much a, a woman who finds herself in the midst of a crisis. I was speaking to a friend the other day and I said, I'm going to preach on this particular passage in Grange Baptist. And he said, well, Brian, that lady found herself in a crisis of her own doing, really. And I agree somewhat. But I have to say, I found myself in a crisis of my own doing in my life. And I've needed God to step in. And therefore, I think this is a good passage to turn to for us to see how Christ steps into our crisis and changes things. How Christ steps into our individual crisis. Reading the Word of God, John chapter 8, verse number 1. The Word of God says this. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him. And he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have reason, they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down. And with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself, and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go, and sin no more. And amen. And we know God's word does not return to him. Void. Before we explain the word of God tonight, it is important for me as the preacher here to bring up a topic of much debate regarding this particular passage. This particular passage is known as the Pericope Adultery and really among evangelical Orthodox Christians, evangelical Orthodox Christians, there is a debate if this particular story should be included in the canon of scripture. Now bear with me, bear with me. 
It's debated whether it should be included in the canon of Scripture. In fact, the New English Bible removes it from this particular position in John's Gospel and puts it at the very end of John's Gospel under this little heading, an incident in the temple. Nearly every modern version of the Bible has this particular passage in italics or a little bracket that says something like this. The earliest Greek manuscripts do not include John chapter 7 verse 53 to John chapter 8 verse 11. That's what they say. In fact, in John chapter 7, the story is taking place during the Feast of Tabernacles, known as the Feast of Booze. And in John chapter 7, there are two ceremonies that take place. There's the pouring of water, and Jesus says that he is that living water. And then the, there's also a second part of the ceremony where they light lanterns. Now, if you were to read the story and end at verse 52 of John 7, and pick it up in John 8, verse 12, the story, the narrative would still flow seamlessly. Because Jesus in verse 12 says, I am the light of the world. He says this while he looks around and sees them lighting lanterns. The story would flow very seamlessly. This is the evidence that individuals use to prove, as it were, that it doesn't belong in the canon of Scripture. In fact, there are 13 words in this story that John doesn't use anywhere else in his Gospel. He never again refers to the Mount of Olives in such a way. He never again uses the phrase Pharisees or scribes and Pharisees. These are words that he doesn't use. But I have to say tonight, by my own conscience, that I firmly believe those people are wrong. They are wrong. I have total confidence that what I'm preaching tonight is nothing less than the word of God. Augustine, the well-known theologian in AD 400, said this about this particular story. He knew of its omission in certain passages, and this is what he said. Certain persons of little faith, or rather enemies of the true faith, I suppose, have removed this from their manuscripts, this act of forgiveness of the Lord, as if to say, whenever the Lord Jesus said, sin no more, Jesus was granting the permission to sin. There are individuals in the world today, well-known scholars. I'm not a rogue tonight, by the way. I'm not just saying this is what I believe and nobody else believes it. I'm not a rogue. There are well-known scholars and theologians in the world today who side with me. I don't side with them, they side with me. But this is what they say. These individuals, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, John, James Montgomery Boyce, A.W. Pink, J.C. Ryle, Warren Wearsby, John Calvin. These individuals believe this should be in the canon of Scripture. I do as well. I believe it is nothing less than the word of God. This is a powerful story concerning the wisdom and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe it, and therefore I'm going to preach it tonight with absolute passion and conviction. This is a story about grace tonight. Grace. And just like our series in the past, we're going to go down the verses of Scripture tonight, and we're going to see what gems of truth lie therein. Again, not focusing on every verse, but perhaps in a few of them we'll take something that we can apply to our own lives. It says in verse 1 that Jesus went onto the Mount of Olives. Here in this particular story, the Feast of the Tabernacles is taking place. We're about six months away from Calvary. We're about six months away from Calvary here whenever this story takes place. And Jesus walked up the Mount of Olives. In fact, if you read verse 53 of John 7, it says, And every man went unto his own house. Verse 1 should really begin with a but. It would make perfect sense if it began with a but. But Jesus went up 
to the Mount of Olives. Every man went to his own house, but Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. In fact, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it tells us it was Jesus' pattern in the closing days of his earthly ministry in Jerusalem to do exactly that. He taught during the day, and then he retired outside the city and spent the night, usually in the Mount of Olives, Luke twenty-one thirty-seven. And in the daytime, he was teaching in the temple, and at night he went out and abode in the mount which is called the Mount of Olives. Luke twenty two thirty nine. And he came out and went as he went to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. During the last days of his ministry on earth, Jesus taught during the day and went to the Mount of Olives at night. It would seem that Jesus, this was one of his favorite places to be. The wording here in this particular passage from verse 53 to verse 1 implies that Jesus spent the night in the Mount of Olives. He spent all night there. And then he came back again in verse 2, early in the morning to the temple. The Lord Jesus Christ was a man who spent all night in prayer. He was a man who rose early in the morning to spend the morning hours in the prayer. In prayer, Mark chapter 1 verse 35. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. You know the interesting thing about Mark chapter 1 verse 35. We're leaving John chapter 8 for a moment or two. The interesting thing about Mark chapter 1 verse 35. Whenever it says Jesus arose early in the morning. Went to a solitary place to pray. This takes place after what is arguably the busiest day of Jesus ministry on earth. The previous day, Jesus taught in the synagogue in Capernaum. He healed a demon-possessed man. He went and healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. And then he went out and healed the needs of the people in Capernaum throughout the evening time. And instead of sleeping in the next morning, instead of recharging himself in bed, the Lord Jesus Christ arose early in the morning, went to a solitary place and prayed. The morning after the busiest day recorded in scripture in the ministry of Jesus, he was no doubt exhausted because he was fully man. Fully man and fully God. He was no doubt exhausted. And yet what does he do? He doesn't sleep in. He gets up early and he prays. I wonder, dear friend, and I'm including myself in this tonight, what do you and I do after a busy day of ministry? Do we watch a movie? Do we take a nap? Do we put our feet up? And sit on the sofa for a bit. I'm not pointing the finger at you, by the way. We all do that. We all do that. But here we see the Lord Jesus Christ arose up early the next morning to pray. And I wonder, dear friend, if you and I did the same thing and after the busiest days that we have in ministry, what would our life be like? What would our ministry be like? What would our ministry be like if we did the same thing? The example of Jesus' prayer life is important to every believer on earth. To the Lord Jesus Christ, was a man who made regular deposits in prayer and took out time and time again. And if you and I did the same thing, it would show. Imagine if you rose early in the morning to pray, you made a regular deposit in the place of prayer and you withdraw it throughout the day. I know you do that. But imagine if we do it and we think so much of it. If we don't think so little of it and just relax. The Lord Jesus Christ knew that his time on earth was short. He redeemed the time. He rose early in the morning to pray. He went up to the Mount of Olives to pray. No doubt this is what he did here in verse 1. And then in verse 2 it tells us, And early in the morning he came again into the temple. Reading that little verse of scripture, whenever I was in 
I find the preachers always say, whenever I'm in the study, I don't have a study. But whenever I'm in the place of study, if that's the right terminology to use. Whenever I'm in the place of study, I read verse number 2. And the word that stuck out to me was the word, again. Again. And early in the morning, he came again into the temple. It implies to me very much that the Lord Jesus Christ had previous visits to the temple This was just not a one-off. This was just not a rare occasion for him. It was a pattern. He came again to the temple. I wonder, dear saint of God tonight, is it a pattern for you to come to the place of worship? I know you're here tonight in the midweek meeting. I'm sure you come to church on the Lord's Day. I have no doubt of that. But is it a pattern in your life to come to the place of worship? It is a pattern in your life to come to the services when you can, when they're on here at Grange Baptist Church. Is it a pattern? Can someone say to you, that you come again and again and again and again to the services. This is what the Lord Jesus did. But something striking happens here whenever he comes to the temple this day. Because verse number 3. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. In Jesus' day, rabbis and other spiritual leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, enjoyed widespread respect and were held in high esteem in Jewish society. Almost everybody looked up to a Pharisee. They were the strict adherents to the Mosaic law. They were guardians of tradition. And they were exemplary in following the word of God. This phrase that we read, scribes, as I've said, it's mentioned nowhere else in John's gospel. But whenever you read the word scribes, it doesn't mean that they were just professional copywriters. That's not what they were. These were individuals who were experts in the law. In fact, in the other synoptic gospels, you'll read the word lawyers. They were lawyers because they were experts in interpreting the law. Most of them, most scribes, not all of them, but most of them were Pharisees by conviction. Most scribes were Pharisees. These individuals really ruled Jewish political society as well. And then there were the Sadducees. Sadducees held a majority of the seats in the Sanhedrin. And these were the guys who really didn't like the Lord Jesus. Uh, the, The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. I'll not bore you with that old joke. Uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees didn't believe the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Yeah, see. It, oh, I'll tell it better next time, don't worry. But see, this was these individuals. These individuals who, who denied the resurrection. And therefore, whenever the apostles preached the resurrection of Jesus, they despised it. They despised it. And these were the individuals who came to trap the Lord Jesus This was going to be a moment for them that they would always remember. This is the day, the morning, that they were going to foil the mighty Nazarene, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can see these men came here with a self-righteousness, didn't they? They came with a self-righteousness. So often it happens, well not so often, sometimes it happens. Sometimes it happens in Christian circles, isn't it? Sometimes we come with our own self-righteousness. Sometimes we have our own self-righteousness and circumstances. Sometimes we look at individuals and we think to themselves or to ourselves, come as you are, not as we are. Hmm? Hmm? I think sometimes our self-righteousness, it really bubbles over sometimes. Sometimes we're like Peter whenever, whenever he visited Antioch. Whenever Peter visited Antioch, he caused believers to stumble there because of his own behavior. I actually believe... This is my opinion, uh, but I actually believe that it's something the Holy Spirit had to deal with in Peter's life. I believe even into his ministry for the Lord Jesus, Peter was a little bit, at least, sectarian. 
toward individuals who were not Jews. We read in Galatians 2 that he enjoyed eating with Gentile believers who didn't keep Jewish customs up until the time that James's Jewish friends arrived from Jerusalem. And when Peter saw them, he withdrew from his Gentile friends. Didn't want to be seen with them anymore, you see. And so because of Peter's hypocrisy, many Jewish believers began to slip up. Even Barnabas was led astray. And he had to be confronted by the Apostle Paul. I wonder how often does our self-righteousness bubble up? How often does it bubble up? How often maybe do we not sit beside somebody in church because they're just not dressed the way we want them to be dressed? Maybe they're just not acting the way we want them to act. And so our self-righteousness bubbles up. No, I'm not sitting beside that person. It happens. It happens. And these scribes and Pharisees, they brought a woman taken in adultery. And they left this woman in the midst of the crowd there in this, in this court. Before a large crowd, the Jewish authorities literally dropped this woman for the Lord Jesus to render judgment. The Lord Jesus is teaching here. And it says all the people came unto him. Can you imagine the crowd? Can you imagine the crowd? This, these men thrust this woman into the middle of an early morning Bible class. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine it? She's taken in the act of adultery, the Bible tells us. The accusation rings out across the courtyard. The words alone, as I say them from the pulpit tonight, are enough to make you blush. In an instant, this woman is yanked away and she's pulled down the street to the Lord Jesus. Heads poke out of windows as these posse of Pharisees push her along the street. Dogs bark, neighbours turn. But nothing can hide this woman's shame. From this moment on, She'll be known as an adulteress. When she goes to market, woman will whisper. When she passes by, heads will turn. And whenever her name is mentioned, the act of adultery will be mentioned also. After all, moral failure has a quick, a quick recall, does it not? What do the Pharisees care about this woman? Why, she's immaterial. It doesn't matter about her. She's merely a pawn in her game. Her future? doesn't matter. Her reputation? Who cares? She's only a necessary, dispensable part of the Pharisee's plan. You know, in the cases of adultery, Jewish law called for the death of both individuals without actually stipulating the means of death. But if a woman was engaged to be married, the penalty specifically was stoning. You can read it in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 22 to 24. And since this Israelite ladies were often engaged as young as 14, you can imagine that this could possibly be a frightened teenager in the midst of these individuals. And clearly the religious leaders didn't care too much about her. They didn't care about her feelings. They didn't care about humiliating her. This was just a trap to trap the Lord Jesus. And after, after I said this takes place during the Feast of Tabernacles, there's something that I should point out. The Feast of Tabernacles, whenever this story takes place, it's celebrated five days after the Day of Atonement, and it lasts eight days. It lasts from Sabbath to Sabbath. It's one of the most joyous celebrations in the time of the Israelites. And this feast, the Feast of the Tabernacles, known as the Feast of the Booze, is whenever all the Jewish native-born males would come back to Jerusalem. They would come back to Jerusalem and they would dwell there. The influx of people in Jerusalem during this feast would cause the people to stay in temporary shelters built with wood known as booths. Hence, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booze. And during this time of year, I'm not going to say it was commonplace because that would be wrong. But it did happen that adultery took place. It did happen that adultery took place. The influx of male Jewish men 
in the city for one feast, one of the most joyous occasions in the calendar of the Jewish individual, adultery did happen. You, you dwelt in a little shelter outside of town. It happened. It happened. And it's probably what happened here. It's probably what happened here. And they bring this woman and they bring her and throw her into the midst of the Lord Jesus. You see, they do that there because they want the response to be as public as possible. You see, they're hoping to catch out the Lord Jesus in serious error. And I'll tell you why. Because if Jesus recommended that the woman be released, he'd be guilty of breaking Mosaic law. On the other hand, if Jesus urged them to stone her, he would be guilty of breaking Roman law. You see, in John chapter 18, verse 31, it tells us that the Jews were not allowed to commit executions under Roman occupation. The Romans wouldn't allow it, which is why the Sanhedrin had to go to the Romans to execute the Lord Jesus. Either way, either option, the Lord Jesus could accept none. The Jewish leaders didn't care about justice, evidenced by the fact that they only brought the woman and not the man. I'm sure you know that already. I don't need to tell you that. They brought the woman and not the man. In fact, I'm going to give you my two cents again. I think that the man was in cahoots with the Pharisees. I believe that the religious leaders might have actually used this man to trap this woman just to, just to snare the Lord Jesus. Again, that's simply my opinion. And please don't leave and say Brian Cruz taught me this and it's gospel truth. In my opinion, I believe this man was in cahoots with the Pharisees. He may have been part of the trap, the text does not say, but I believe he was part of the trap just to snag the Lord Jesus. It tells us in verse 4 that she's caught in the very act. In the very act. And no doubt that was a humiliating experience for her. But I have to say this. How often have you and I, dear saint of God, perhaps been caught in the act of something? Maybe you've been checking something on your phone or your iPad whenever a believer looked over your shoulder and said, Hello. Maybe you've been having an argument with your spouse in the home and the doorbell rang and it was somebody from church. Hello. How often have you and I been, been caught in the act of a sin and it's humiliating? It's embarrassing. And even if we try to manage to keep our sin hidden from fellow believers, we have to understand that every sin ever committed is before the ever watchful eye of the Lord. Every sin. God knows every sinful thought that we secretly entertain. He knows every swear word that we say that is muttered underneath our breath. He knows every hatred that simmers in our hearts towards somebody who's wronged us. He knows every deceptive word that we've ever spoken to cover our tracks. He knows every sin that we commit whenever we're alone, whenever nobody else can see us. And like this woman, you've been caught right in the act. You've been caught right in the act. But see, the beautiful thing about this story is this. It's a story of failure, yes. It's a story of abuse, yes. It's a story of shame, yes. But most importantly, it's a story of grace. Amen? It's a story of grace. On this day, Jesus lifted up this woman from a position of undeniable guilt to one of unconditional pardon. He did the same for you and I, did he not? And that's a reason for us to praise him tonight. That's enough for us to praise him tonight. The Lord Jesus Christ lifted us up out of the miry clay and set us upon the rock that is himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I have newness of life because of him. Jesus, in verse 6, it tells us this. Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. In John Gill's exposition of the Bible, he suggests that Jesus was shaming his enemies by ignoring them, showing them that they were unworthy to be heard. 
Dear friend, I have to say something as well tonight. Don't cast your pearl before swine. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Sometimes by acknowledging a petty problem, you give it existence and credibility. Whenever somebody in the workplace maybe, maybe says something demeaning regarding your faith in Jesus Christ, my friend, why do you even give it traction? Why do you even give it traction? Remember that you consciously choose to give it traction. You can easily just choose not to notice that irritating response in the workplace. Consider it trivial. It's not worth your interest. In fact, the most powerful response to petty annoyances and irritations and to deflect someone's attention is to make it clear that the attack didn't even register. Didn't even register with you. Look away. Answer sweetly. The showing that it didn't concern you at all. And watch how that actually perhaps annoys the individual. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 11, The discretion of a man maketh him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offence. It is his glory to overlook an offence. Don't cast your pearl before swine. Be as gentle as doves, but as wise as serpents. A mature person is an individual who is in control of his emotions. You have a long wick that burns slowly. It allows you to overlook a transgression and not get bogged down in trivial drama. An immature person is somebody who likes to get a few jabs in, aren't they? They want to get the last word in. Usually they think that there's a, an audience watching and therefore they want to get a few jabs in, perhaps regarding your faith in God. Those are an individual lacking glory. I imagine, dear church tonight, you're not an individual who's lacking glory. You're mature in your walk. You know how to respond. The Lord Jesus Christ steps down here and he begins to write. He ignores them as though he heard them not. As though he heard them not. And now we have to discuss really the elephant in the room. What did Jesus write in the ground? What did Jesus write in the ground? Jesus steps down and writes in the dirt. This is the same finger that engraved the commandments on Sinai's peak. It's the same finger that seared the warning on Belteshazzar's wall. This finger now scribbles on the dirt on a courtyard. A courtyard. This is the only sermon that Jesus ever wrote that we know of. The only sermon that Jesus ever wrote. The puzzling detail here is that this is one of the richest sources of speculation in the word of God. And we simply don't know. We simply don't know what he wrote. But again, Grange Baptist, you know me so well. And therefore I'm going to give you my opinion again tonight. I think he wrote down their sins. I think he wrote down their sins. I'll tell you why I think he wrote down their sins. Because they were pricked in their conscience. Now, I think the reason they were pricked in their conscience because the word of God says whenever they heard what he said, that was the thing that pricked their conscience. But I believe the Lord Jesus fed into that by what he wrote on the ground. He wrote their sins on the ground, in my opinion. I'll tell you why. Two reasons. Because their conscience was pricked, but also because they left from the oldest to the youngest. And the reason I think they did that is twofold. Because the oldest had more sins that they were aware of. The oldest had more sins to write down. But also the older individual was more conscious of it. The younger Pharisees and scribes were a bit stiff-necked. You're never as stiff-necked as you are whenever you're about 21 or 22. I'm only 29. And I can remember being 21 and thinking I knew everything about the Bible. These guys... No doubt the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe, wrote their sins on the ground. The older men were convicted first because they were more humble, perhaps, in heart. 
Perhaps they had more sins to write down and therefore they left. The younger men stayed longer because they were hardened in their heart. They were stiff-necked and they thought to themselves, I don't care what he's writing down in the ground, I'm not leaving. And then eventually they did. I think he wrote down their sins, but we don't know. The response in verse 7, it says, So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and they which heard it, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one. The response here in verse 7 shows us that the Lord Jesus Christ perfectly preserved both Jewish law and Roman law while uncovering the evil intentions of the accuser's hearts. Whenever he says, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. The Lord Jesus is telling the Pharisees, if we're going to start flinging stones, then everybody's going to be half the stoned in this circle apart from me. If you're going to start throwing stones, you have to start throwing them at each other too. The only person qualified to throw a stone here didn't. Didn't. And whenever they heard it, it says they were convicted in themselves. Verse 9. They were convicted by their own conscience. The verb indicates, as I've already said, that it wasn't what was written down in the ground that convicted them, but what they heard from Jesus' mouth that convicted them. And let me ask you a question. Dear church, if you were convicted of your sin by your conscience in the presence of Jesus Christ, what would you do? Would you run to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness? I'd like to think that I would. I'd like to think that I would. But what did the religious leaders do? They began to walk away one by one. They began to walk away one by one. The phrase here in the Greek is the imperfect tense. It means they began to walk away like a procession, just one after the other. One after the other. Like, like snakes. He slithered back again. Another translation words it this way. They began to drift away one at a time. Another translation says they slipped away one by one. You see the problem with the Pharisees. They didn't want to face the reality of their own sin. But now they had to and they had to leave. Couldn't bear it. Couldn't bear it. And therefore after this. The Lord Jesus speaks to the woman. And they all begin to talk about how there's no accuser there. And then we come down to verse number 11. In verse number 11, just before I close this evening, this verse is often misapplied by those Christians who think that we ought never to speak out against sin. In fact, the exact opposite is true. Jesus showed this woman spectacular grace while still holding firm by calling out her adultery and calling it what it was, sin. Sin. Neither do I condemn thee Go and sin no more. Her sin was not condoned. It was confronted. And yet the sinner was comforted. It's an incredible balance to get, isn't it? To confront the sin but comfort the sinner. It's so hard to get right sometimes. Whenever Jesus says go and sin no more, what he means is go and leave your life of sin. Jesus here is commanding the woman, go in a new direction in life. Don't go back to the sinful lifestyle that you were in. Leave that and walk in forgiveness. Walk in newness of life. Jesus did not condemn her, but he commanded her to abandon this sinful lifestyle. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't excuse sin. Encountering Jesus always demanded a transformation of life. The turning away from sin. Her sin was not treated lightly by the Lord. But she was offered the opportunity to walk in newness of life. Too often I think the story or this verse is misapplied by individuals. 
We read in this story that Jesus was the friend of sinners, and that's a precious truth. But like every precious truth in the word of God, it needs to be protected, safeguarded against doctrinal and ethical error. It's too easy and amazingly common for Christians and non-Christians to take a truth like Jesus was the friend of sinners, or Jesus ate with sinners. Too often we hear that phrase, Jesus ate with sinners, and we misapply it. That means Jesus loved a good party. No. Oh, that means, that means Jesus was more interested in showing love than pointing out sin. No. Unlike the religious leaders who had no regard for this woman's well-being, the Lord Jesus cared for her, but he cared for her most pressing need. And that was her sin, or forgiveness thereof. He didn't condemn the woman, but he extended grace and mercy and forgiveness. But nowhere in this passage does he excuse her sin. Nowhere does he condone it. He calls her sin, sin. Jesus reassured her with grace and truth and offered her a life free of guilt and shame. Whenever he says, go, that shows forgiveness. Whenever he says, sin no more, that shows a holiness of life. Whenever you're forgiven, there has to be a holiness and newness of your life. Doesn't there? You have to walk in a changed life. Neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Just as I close this evening, dear church, I think we too often get those phrases mixed up, do we not? Neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. I think sometimes whenever people come into our churches or to our evangelism meetings or to our maybe gospel rallies, sometimes we think to ourselves, go and sin no more. And then I won't condemn you. I just don't like the way you dress. I don't just don't like the way you behave. Go and sin no more. And then I won't condemn you. But that's not what the Lord Jesus does. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You know, the Lord Jesus called his disciples to be fishers of men. Fishers of men. I, I don't go fishing. That's not something I do. Uh, I prefer a quicker thing than that. But I don't like to go fishing. But whenever you go fishing... I imagine whenever you go fishing and you catch a fish, it's not caught and you don't catch it clean and filleted and nice and all, nice and done and ready for the restaurant. That's just not how it works, sure it's not. You catch it and it's slimy and it's disgusting and it's not ready for a restaurant just yet. In fact, there's resistance there when you catch it. Too often I think we look at people who come into church and we expect them to be the way we want them to be rather than them to be maybe a little bit not what we want them to be. We should show grace to such individuals, should we not? In his book, Grace, Max Licato writes this. Regarding this story, we read in John chapter 8. Within a few moments, the courtyard was empty. Jesus, the woman, her accusers, they all had left. But let's you and I linger for a moment. Look at the ground, abandoned and unused. But let's look over here at the scribbling in the dust. Even if we don't know the words... I'm wondering if it reads something like this. Just four words. Grace was shown here. Grace was shown here. My friend, grace was shown here in this story. Christ stepped into a crisis. I wonder, dear friend, do you and I have reason to give thanks tonight? For the Lord Jesus stepping into a crisis in our own lives. Perhaps a crisis of sin. And grace was shown to you and I. That's a reason to give thanks tonight as we meet together in prayer. Amen. Amen.